up, guys? This is Ricketti, and I have a very, very special guest on the line. Uh, I actually have Ricketti Amen. Dr. Ricketti Amen, excuse me. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you. So I usually start my interviews with uh, letting people know how we met. But, I mean, this is a special case because um, I guess I kind of knew you before I, we even met because I have your name. So uh, my father actually named me after uh, Dr. Amen, and I actually, the first time I met her was maybe about two years ago at the International uh, African um, Arts Festival, and uh, she actually didn't know that uh, I was named after her. Did my dad even give you a hint at all? No, actually, I hadn't spoken to him in uh, many years, so I did not know that you were named after me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that was a, I'm sorry? I said until that day. Yeah. So, how did you feel? Were you, like, really taken aback? (laughs) No, I, no, I I was happy, happy to hear that someone else had my name. And let me tell you, I love, when I tell you I love my name, I love my name. I used to tell Daddy all the time, like, thank you so much, because it's, I stand out, and unfortunately, like, people do think that it's just a bunch of letters, like, uh, thrown together. But then I, you know, I have to explain to them that it's not an an Anglo-Saxon name. So, of course, you know, uh, it would be different from the usual day-to-day Jessicas and everybody else's. Uh, but let's get right into the interview. So can you tell everyone, um, just give everyone a, a brief background of who you are, what you study, um, and we'll go from there. Okay, uh, dua, which means thank you. Thank you very much <laughs> for that. Um, my name is Riketi Amin, and uh, I am a chemitologist um, slash Egyptologist. My husband walked uh, in here trying to tell okay. me something. I remember when our father told us, and I don't know, I can't remember if you were there or not, but he told us he was going to name his daughter Ken. I remember that. Now, that had to be where, before she was born, but he was telling us that, that he was going to name his daughter Ken. All right, you heard that, right? Yeah, okay. He said, before you were even born, he told us that. And that must have been at a lecture in, at African Echoes. I seem to remember that, because I remember the, the discussion about that uh, he told us. See, this is so long ago that he was having a daughter, and, and he was going to name her Raquel. That's what I remember. And if I may remember more later on, but uh, that's what I remember. I don't think you were there. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. My husband has a long, has a much longer relationship with, with your father, Inuni, along with um, several other people whose names I jotted down here, um, mm-hmm. who, by the way, would be really good people to interview and talk to. They knew him well. You know, African Echoes was always a big part of their lives, and I came along a little later, around not after 1986, so 1986, 1987, but my husband and several of his friends 
they had a, re a real relationship with Inuni for years, even before I got here. So um, just letting you know that. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. And you know what? I was like, what prompted you to name me after? He was like, when you meet Riketty, you will know. I was like, Daddy, she doesn't even live anywhere close to He was like, he just looked at me. I was like, okay. Well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, my name is Riketty Amen, and I am a chemistologist slash Egyptologist. That, what that means is that I teach about ancient Kemet and the language of, of um, Kemet, uh, namely ancient Egypt, Egyptian hieroglyphs, which is um, called Medunetur in its original language. I've been teaching um, Medunetur and about Kemet for more than 35 years, almost 40 years, actually. And I... Um, went to school to, to study the language, and ever since then, I have been teaching um, the language and the culture the ancient of the ancient African people of Kemet in the Nile Valley. Okay. So what piqued or what prompted your interest in learning and practicing essentially linguistics, but in, uh, in the Medunetra form? Right. Well, first, uh, my first experience at, in college was actually linguistics. And I've always, I had always been interested as a child in learning languages. I just love learning different languages. Um, and I taught myself or tried to teach myself many different languages. And when I got to college with all the African students, on the on the campus, I would often get them, pay them actually, uh, to teach me their language, and many of them did. So I studied many African languages just on my own, just for fun, because mm. I just love languages. But um, after a point at the, I I went to school at the University of Illinois as an undergraduate, and and while I was there, Dr. Binyakanan um, from New York would often come there to lecture, and I would go to his lectures, and he was always talking about Kemet. And I was just totally fascinated by it. When I had an opportunity to go to graduate school, I knew immediately that that's what I wanted to study. So um, I was really motivated and encouraged by um, what Dr. Binyakanan was was spreading the word throughout the African community about Kemet. And and so I went to the University of Chicago, Oriental Institute, and I studied um, what they call Egyptian hieroglyphs. And ever since then, that's been my focus, um, that solely. Mm. So uh, growing up, did did was there like a defining moment that, uh, piqued your interest in linguistics, or was this uh, something that mainly developed in adulthood? No, as a child, like I said, I love learning languages, and I still today uh, try to learn new languages. Uh, for example, um, one of the one one of the class, one, my most important class in at the University of Illinois in linguistics was field linguistics, what that is, that is um, being able to 
understand a new language that's totally unknown in the field. So the, that that whole idea is, is very interesting to me. But I will tell you this, that at the University of Illinois, um, I was actually the only African-American student in the linguistics department, period, mm. for the whole for the whole, uh, I was there for three and a half years. Yeah, for the whole three and a half years that I was there, there was a very small number of students to begin with, but they were always only, only European. That's it. Um, so that was quite an experience. So I kind of struggled through that, um, with the teachers and everything, but, I made it through the program with flying colors, and that's how I was able to get a fellowship to the University of Chicago to study um, Egyptian hieroglyphs slash Medunetur. Um So I just love languages. And being able to communicate with people in their language. As African Americans, we usually, as a group, only speak one language, that is English. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I um, found that to be very uninteresting and boring, to be perfectly honest. I wanted to to be able to talk to people in different languages. I wanted to be able to read um, books in different languages, watch uh, films, just all kinds of things. But I knew that it made no sense to just speak one language. And many of the African students on the continent that I got, that I befriended and who helped me learn, they were all speaking 10 and more languages just fluently. Um, and that's just the norm for African, for Africans from the continent to be multilingual, speaking so many different languages and dialects. So I wanted to. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm finished. I just oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. For the, for those of you who've never um like done a, a phone interview, there is a, a lag. Um, but uh, I was gonna say that unfortunately, like I have noticed that uh, as Americans, I feel like in general as well, uh, we usually just speak one language, and uh, when you go abroad, literally everyone else speaks more than one language, and English is probably like their second or third language. What I want to tell you too as well, which I think is kind of interesting, is that I actually studied uh, speech pathology in school and I took a linguistics class, which is it's an interesting like uh, parallel. I mean, um, I took the linguistics class and linguistics was not necessarily for me, but I did find it interesting um, with the basics that I did learn. Uh, and I want you to tell everyone why languages are important. Right. Well, languages are are important for a, so so many reasons. The main one is that language is is an expression of one's culture, and language is the embodiment of a of a culture. The culture mm-hmm. of the language is revealed totally in the language. So that's the main reason. Um, for the importance of language. It's a cultural expression. So here we are, we speak English. And for the most of most African Americans, that is their only language. So we are expressing ourselves in the culture of German people, of a Germanic mm. language. And 
So the words we use, the way they're defined, is through the worldview, cultural perspective of a Germanic people, which has nothing to do with us as African people. Nothing. If we could speak an African language, we would be more in tune with African culture, um, with its meanings, its inner meanings, its spirituality, its sounds, its rhythms, its um, on, on many different levels, we would be in tune with that culture. Um, but we we're not doing that. We're all, we are totally locked into the the cultural uh, expression of a Germanic people. And quite honestly, it has affected our lives in so many uh, bad ways. The definitions, the words we use, and their meanings, and the mm. definitions. Everything about speaking um, a language totally uh, puts you deeper and deeper into the spiritual consciousness, rhythms, um, definitions of that language. It's imperative that we learn an African language because it's we're actually it's like being in a prison, only being able to express yourself in this language. Now, yes, African people make English their own we do that right we mm -hmm. change the rhythm we change some of the definitions of words we do that we even change the, the grammar we do that um but it's just really not enough um it's not enough to to remove us from the mindset of english it's just not enough so english is everything excuse me language is everything it is so important mm -hmm. And one of the things I do as a linguist is comparative languages. Here's another aspect that's that's important. I compare other African languages to Medunetra. Um, mm. And through that, our scholars have been able to determine the genetic relationship, the cultural relationship between ancient Kemet and modern and and, African, and other African languages and other African people, looking for our or, origins, looking for our cultural unity through language. So those are some of the reasons why language is important. That is very interesting. I never even thought about it like that, um, to the depth that you just explained it to. But um, I guess my question, too, if if a person of African descent wanted to, um, I guess, learn more about themselves. And and even from my, from my perspective, how would one go about doing so? Because, uh, as you know, like my father's Guyanese, but my mother's also Guyanese. And I have tried to um, trace back my lineage, and it, it can only go but, I mean, but so far, maybe to my great-grand- parents is that much so how what would be a good first step for one to um just tap into their african consciousness uh should they start off with medinature or uh from your experience what would be just a good foundation for them to start off on? right thank you for the question i i think to tap into your Afri our african uh, being, I'll, I'll use that word if I can. I mm -hmm. think the 
best place to start actually would be Medunetra. And the reason is because Medunetra is perhaps the, one of the, the root languages of many African languages. And it is also the root of many African cultures. We have a, a we mm. had, I'm sorry, a, um, a great African scholar um, who's no longer with us, Dr. Shekhan Diop. And Dr. Diop uh, spent years trying to show the connection between ancient Kemet and, and the many other uh, cultures and languages throughout the continent. He wrote a wonderful book called Cultural Unity of Black Africa. And in that book, he demonstrated that that there is a cultural unity, and it all goes back to Kemet. And he also showed that there's a linguistic unity on the continent, and it all goes back to Kemet. And Kemet, Medunetra, is the oldest African language that we actually have a large body of written literature that right. we can read back to and that we can actually study and learn about the language and learn about the culture. And the cultural expressions of Kemet are beyond anything that most people could even imagine because mm. not only was it the source, not only is it the source of African culture, but it actually is the source of uh, what other, uh, what other nations and other groups of people have built for themselves in bits and pieces from the, the, the culture, the language of Kemet. But when you study Kemet, you are totally um, uh, put into a completely different worldview and way of conceptualizing, way of realizing and understanding uh, life and nature and relationships and everything else. The language transforms you into an African person. Really, mm. and there's, like I said, there's so much literature and so much there um, that you could um, could really. Um, it's it's very transforming. It it just really is. You can study. I I study, as I just said, many Af other African languages as well, but none of them uh, can do for for me anyway. I'll just speak for myself what Medunetra can do. It's a completely different language and can't explain it all here at this time. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But so <clears throat> as a woman, what has um your experience been like moving through the linguistics community and especially studying Medunetra? As a woman. Um uh, have you I mean have you faced any pushback from the linguistics community because you said that you've been teaching for over 30 years and just 30 years ago I'm pretty sure that um you know there was some type of pushback especially because of certain standards that were put into place and as a, a uh, an African woman uh I'm almost sure that you know certain academics weren't necessarily keen on, on hearing what you had to say. And the reason why I say that I'm almost sure is because I've been in predicaments where, um, and in, in majors where I've been the only person of color 
or one of two at least. Right. I I do understand that question very well. Uh, there are two sides to that. One is that yes, um, I when I went from from the academic side when I went to the University of Chicago, which is one of the leading institutions of where where there's the study of Egyptology in the whole world, I was the first and only, well, first, because we have a new one right now, but I was the first at the time, the only African-American person, let alone female, to study Egyptology at at the University of Chicago. And then also being the only female, um, African-American female, that was that was very, very challenging in itself. Although I was, I was very welcome there, to be perfectly honest. I have no complaints about the school except for what they teach. Their worldview and their perspective was not mine at all. So I ended up having to basically be silent until I got out of the school. But um, being a, a female is is another thing, and that is um, female are accepted in the in the Western, in the European community without a problem but oftentimes in our own African American community I found other issues I, I had other problems being not taken seriously not fully respected and here's one that's classic this is classic uh, I had been I have been on many panels many speaking panels with well-known uh, well-known scholars, we would uh, be talking about the same thing, the same topic. Let's say the topic would be ancient Kemet, the same topic, and there would be five of us on a panel, and everybody would be making thousands of dollars. Literally, I'm not kidding. Mm-mm. But but my check would be more like five hundred. And the reason mm-hmm. for that, I, and, and not only that, everything I would, what I was saying about Kemet was well informed from having been to a school of Kemet, of Egyptology, right? Well informed, very knowledgeable. It's not, I knew as much or more usually than some of the other panelists, but because they were male and because they were famous, it was always thought that they could just simply get paid more. And, than me. And I think that struggle even continues to today, that still um, people don't take women seriously. They just don't. How do you, how do you remedy that, though? How do or I how have it? you, how have you, I guess, overcome that or fought against that? Um. It hasn't changed. It may have – actually, it hasn't changed a whole lot. It's changed a little bit, but it still it still hasn't really changed. I don't really know what's going to change that. Um, I really don't know. I don't know. Maybe you'll figure that out. You're young. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll, I'll try my best. <laughs> um, so – did your African consciousness come before or after studying linguistics? Like, did you have an African mindset uh, going into 
studying linguistics, or was it because of the encounter that you had with Dr. Ben? Thank you very much for that question. I love that question because starting from the time I was about eight, well, 18 years old, actually, when I was 18 and fresh out of high school, I actually started working. I actually started being a community worker for the Black Panther Party. Mm. Um, I actually started my young life as a as an activist. I considered myself to be a revolutionary. I was very involved in in all of the revolutionary uh, organizations in in Chicago. Um, so I was a community activist um, and very very involved in in that uh, as a young person. So that my whole early younger life was activism, um, believing in the revolution and and working in with different community organizations, whether it was SNCC Corps, the Panther Party, um, or whatever. Because I just really that that's that's what I did when I was young, and then I had children, eventually, and then I really decided to pursue. Um, in education, and because of my love of languages, I just went directly into linguistics. But I have to tell you about that too, because mm-hmm. there was a time when I was there was a time when African Americans were simply not allowed as as a whole as as a people to be educated or to get an education in many universities and schools throughout this country. And there were not schools, there were not city colleges available where they could go and learn and study um, from where they, from from where, or the level that they were at. We were not allowed in every school. We were not allowed in every university. We couldn't get scholarships. We couldn't get money. The, the educational level of African Americans were very low. That's my generation. So mm-hmm. with the Civil Rights Bill in 1968, that is really when uh, they, the education um, advantages were opened up to African Americans in this country. And I was one of thousands and thousands of people, African people, who took advantage of that for the first time being able to get in a school like the University of Illinois or the University of Chicago. These schools might have before before then might have taken one or two people Africans a year maybe, hmm. but, but Af- not Af- African American. Af- yeah, African American. But after the Civil Rights Bill, um, then the schools opened up. They even built new schools. So that's how I was afforded the opportunity to go to the University of Illinois to study linguistics in the first place. I grew up during Jim Crow. I grew up during a period where there was still white only, black only, and everything was really horrible in this country. And that's mm. why that's why the revolutionary movement uh, just really developed and grew during my youth, my you know my my yeah, my youth when I was younger. So I um, when the opportunity open to go to college yes I went and that's how that all started but before that I 
I had a level of, I was a very conscious African-centered, uh, quote-unquote, revolutionary person. And so that what that meant is that I knew when I went to school that whatever I learned, whatever I accomplished was going to be for my people. It was going to be for my race, for my people, that I was going to um, devote my energy to teaching, elevating uh, my own people, because I already had that consciousness before I went to school. So I wasn't thinking about, oh, I'm going to get a job and get rich and be an Egyptologist and make money and, right, right. and, mm-hmm. and, and you know, um, socialize with 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 all of them. That was never my intent. My intent was clear from the time that I actually started, that I went to school, what I was going to do when I finished with all this knowledge that I've been given the opportunity to acquire. Mm. So uh, two questions. What did your parents think about that? They must have been afraid for you, no? Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, my parents were not um they definitely were not um, on on my side with that issue. They they were not. They they didn't. Um, the civil rights movement itself, they kind of understood it. Uh, after all, they grew up in Jim Crow themselves, right? And their their grandparents were enslaved, so they understood wow. part of it. Uh, however, they didn't want that for me and my brother and sister, obviously. Um, they didn't want us to struggle that way. They wanted us to have better lives than they had had. Uh, and, and they didn't understand wanting to study linguistics. They didn't understand me wanting to be an Egyptologist um, because they just wanted me to get a good job and make money. That's understandable because of their life and where, what they had gone through. Right. So it was very – but I must say that they were – always supportive of me. Um, my mother, they helped me raise my children when I went to school. Mm. For example. They were always supportive. So, But they didn't understand. Okay. But <laughs> despite that understanding, they were supportive. Yeah. And uh, you spoke a lot about being a revolutionary. Um, and I feel like a lot of times revolution and being a revolutionary has a negative connotation. To you, what does it mean to be, what is a revolutionary? What does it mean to be a revolutionary? Right. For me, it really means, for me, I think it really meant to con- to change the condition of our people. Uh, <clears throat> like I said, I grew up during Jim, Jim Crow. And so for me, it was to change our condition, which was very, very bad, as you know. You know the history of this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only way that you can make a change is to fight for it, to struggle for change. Um, you can't just sit in your house and, well, there was no TV in those days. That was a good mm-hmm. thing. You know, so mm-hmm. we weren't sitting there watching TV, but uh, we were watching what, what went on around us. And But the only way that you can make a change is to get out there and change it, period. Mm-hmm. So that's... Um, that's what it really meant to me. And there were all these organizations like the Panthers and SNCC, for example, that were actually out there working to make a change. 
um, mm-hmm. work and and so that's that's where I was led to to those people the the community act the activists who are out there working every day to make a change that's really what the revolution was for me but I have to say that um, studying Medinature Kemet then that's another revolution because what I learned in school is that most of what has been said about Kemet is not really true because it's from the interpretation and worldview perspective of another group of people writing about Kemet Mm-hmm. But that if we really study it for ourselves from an African-centered view, then all a whole new world reveals itself. And it is where we should be going to bring us we're, – we're physically in a condition, but, but African-Americans are also mentally and spiritually in the wrong place. We need we, – we need to also – uh, develop and move from this, as I said, uh, dramatic English prison, as well as Western civilization, to um, to understand um, to understand Africa, to understand Kemet, to understand who we really are, and going to uh, the University of Chicago. If I had not been conscious before I went there, I would have just been lost, like um, just wanting to make money like anybody else who gets a chance right. to go to a prestigious school. But but because that was not my background, um, I was able to bring all of that and, and give it back to my people. Okay. So uh, one revolutionary thing that I know that you've done over at least my lifetime is that you've changed your name. You know, (laughs) Riketi Ahmed is not the name that your parents gave you. Um, Talk about how you acquired that name and what what was your parents' reaction to that change as well? (laughs) I'm laughing. That's funny because um, they never they never could change over, obviously. They they could never call me that name, and it's, it's more more recently that I even got my maybe in the last thirty years maybe not thirty but maybe twenty years that even my sister and my brother um, will call me by a new name. However, um, names are important, um, and um, for African people, your name is a reflection of who you are, and so we we under um we really totally understood that I understood that from an early age. There was an organization that you well know, the Nation of Islam, who were very, very active in Chicago. And mm. of course, uh one of the things that Elijah Muhammad said is change your name. Uh, you know, don't take don't continue to use the name of the slave owners, but change your name to something African. Uh, and I heard that message even then. I didn't change my name at that time, but I heard that message, and I really understood it, that um, names are important. And so um, when we were, when I was a member of the Comedic Institute in Chicago, we decided, uh, we um, 
decided that we were all going to change our names to um, comedic names that 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 we were going to change our names to uh, express characteristics that we wish to embody or that or that mm. we are and wish to become and and not using the slave owner's name that doesn't mean that you don't have to use it at all that you still want to have that connection with your family right mm, um, right you want to have you want to keep that connection with your family but one thing about African naming practices is that people can take on names all the time throughout your life. For example, when uh, you go through, when you're a child, you are you are one thing. You have one personality or characteristic, or you're one stage of life, so you have a name. But then, when you become an adult, then you are kind of a new person, and you take on a different name. Or if you're initiated into some special um, program or community or, or whatever, then you can take on a new name. You don't have you're not stuck with one name because throughout life you're always developing and and changing, and you can change your name. So you don't have to just be um, <clears throat> Jane Doe all of your life because that's you were born there and your mother parents gave you that but that's not who you are all of your life so you can add to your name or change your name so my name was given to me during initiation for priesthood um by Dr. Jacob Carruthers and my name Ricketti means one who knows or she who knows I would not have ever given myself that name because it seems a bit um, uh, uh, like egotistical or something. Right, right, right. I definitely don't profess to know everything. Um, so that name seems a bit lofty to me, but I was given that name. So I kept mm-hmm. it. I have no choice. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's obviously what he thought of me and the other members of the initiation thought of me. So I keep that name uh, respectfully, and now I like it a lot. And um, But that's how I got my name. That is how I mm. received my And they all took names. They all took other names as well. And what does Amen mean? Now that part I gave myself. Um, okay. I I took that name myself um, after studying Kemet, really. Amen means it's a Medunetra word. It's it's so significant that um, everybody knows that word, right? Most yes, people of know course. It from church. Um, mm-hmm. Amen means first of all hidden, hidden and unknown. And that's very clear in the Medunetra writing because the word Amen just on a basic everyday talking level means hidden, to be hidden. It can also mean to hide um, as a verb, uh, to be hidden um, as a noun, verb, adjective. But on a higher level, because in Medunetra language, all words have multiple levels of meaning, on another level, it means that which is in 
the multiverses or the cosmos or the universe. It's hidden and unknown. Uh, what that means exactly, only speculating that that uh, the source of life is hidden and unknown to, that's something we cannot know or do not know or that is hidden from us. So um, that's basically what Amen means. And then the nature, uh, Amen, means the nature of that which is hidden and unknown. That's what it means. And so the people, all of the world that came to Kemet to study, uh, they actually continued to use that word forever because that was the, one of the highest words or the highest nature principles from ancient Kemet that is still used today in different religions and by different people everywhere. But they don't necessarily, I, I don't know, I've never, I've never asked a person in the church, what do you mean by amen? I actually haven't mm. done that, but um, they, they don't really know the meaning, most of them, some, but um, more towards ancient times, people probably still had some understanding of the meaning of amen. Yeah. So, uh, since we're talking about meanings, unfortunately, there is like a negative connotation with the word hotep. And I feel like you are probably one of the most qualified people to clarify uh, <laughs> any confusion that people might have. So, what is the meaning of hotep? Dua uh, for asking. Hotep is, first of all, I'll paint a picture of it because Medunetra. Writing is pictorial, you know, it's a picture of everything in nature and everything in our environment. So the, the word hotep is written with a picture of an offering table with bread on top of it. And so the main meaning of hotep is offering because that's what it's a picture of in the writing. It's um, an offering. Uh, by extension, the word um, could mean to be satisfied with an offering. And by extension from that, it could have a meaning like being satisfied or satisfaction. But the first meaning is offering. So when we use hotep as a greeting, um, that's really what we're saying. May you have an offering or may you be satisfied. That's what we're actually saying just when we greet people with hotep. Um, it has taken on many new meanings in today's world, like, for example, people will say that hotep means peace. Um, you've probably heard that before. But what it really means is what it's really, as it's presented in the writing, it is an offering. That's what it means. So today we, we use it mainly to, to say peace, um, but that's not what it really means. It means an offering, and may you be satisfied with offerings. Okay. Well, that's – hey. So for anyone listening, here you go. <laughs> so uh, briefly, how did you meet my father? Yes, Inuni, um, I met him at probably at First World. First World was – a lecture series that was offered in New York for many, many, many years, and I was a regular speaker at First World. And so was Inuni, and so was every other 
African-centered person on the East Coast. Um, I met him there, and he invited me to speak at African Echoes, which was his organization in Newark. And so I, I met him there, and um, like I said, he invited me many times that I came to speak at African Echoes. That's how I met him. Uh, did he take one of your Medinetra classes? Yes, he did. He did because I actually taught Medinetra classes for African Echoes on several occasions. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I had, um, and that was very wonderful. He knew, me, repre- uh, he knew the importance of learning Medinetra, and mm-hmm. he helped me to um spread the word of it of how important it was. He set up classes at African Echoes so that I could teach there so that the community could come and, and learn it. Um so he was very good at that. He totally understood why it was so important. Understood that. Yes, he did take my class. Yeah, he was a very good study because he you know, um even when you're in the house, he would write certain things in Medinature on the books. I, I don't read many niches. I don't know what they say, but he still remembers them. He he very much still still practice. So um, just know that your your teachings have you know they they did stay with him for you know till till the end till he was able to write and whatnot. Yeah, um, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. I believe I know that of him. I I'm, I'm sure he. He loved the language, and he he really did. He loved Kemet. He loved Medinetra. He loved, um, and he was totally supportive of me in every way. Um, talk about what classes do you currently teach? Because uh, what if people want to learn Medinetra? Like, how would they contact you? Uh, do I for that? Do I, of course, means thank you. <laughs> I'm throwing out a lot of words, but I try to use Medinetra words all the time and hope mm-hmm. other people get on. Uh, right now, I teach online classes in Medinetra. And so I have students from all over the world because online you can just mm-hmm. reach everybody. Uh, right, right. Students in Europe and Asia and on the continent, everywhere. The classes are usually in the evening, even though I have morning one morning class as well on Sunday morning. But they're online classes, so anybody really can have access to them and learn the language. And I'm also, our school is also getting ready to start um, um, a program with pre-recorded classes where the students don't have to be with a live teacher because right now the teacher is live. Uh, you don't, you won't have to be with a live teacher. You could just take the pre-recorded classes and have um, a few um, discussions with the with the instructors throughout the semester. But right now they're live. So I have a website. It's called medunetter.com. M-E-D-U-N-E-T-E-R.com. And you can go there and you can learn a little bit more about and you can sign up for classes there. And I'd like to say this, that my average student today is 20-something, 30-something. It has completely changed over. And the young people are are doing really good with the language, and I can see that they're going to 
carry this forward and take it to a different level because there's so much that needs to be done. But actually, I get more and more younger, younger crowd, millennials. More of those are actually studying Medinature. Hmm. And do you happen to know, like, what from where is the the most concentration of students? Where are they from? You mean what cities? Yeah, or wherever it is in the world that you have, like, the most concentrated amount of students. Well, the most concentrated are African-Americans here, mm. but the second group is on the continent, really. Mm, um, okay. We have, um, and we have a couple of teachers like Abibitu Mikasa. That's another school that's actually on the continent, and he has students everywhere, and Medu Nature is a prerequisite for for his classes. So um, the United States and 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 the continent of Africa. Those are the two highest concentrations. When I talk about having students, the next group would be in Europe, in the UK. Um, and that's because there's been a relationship with, um, we've had a relationship with uh, African groups in the UK for, for a very long time, for many, many years. And so we get a lot of students from there as well those three places, but then other countries as well. What has been your greatest teaching moment, or sorry, learning moment during your professional career? Uh, I was speaking to Dr. Jeffries and I asked him about, like, uh, what was, what's the biggest mistake that you've made that you'd like to learn? He said, mistake. No, this is a learning moment. I said, okay. <laughs> so what's your greatest learning moment during your professional career? Right. I I don't know what my greatest learning moment is. I would have to say this, that I am always learning from my students, um, always learning from them. They come up with new ideas, creative thoughts uh, that I haven't heard before. We're still in the process of learning Medunetra ourselves. It is not learned because the only thing we already, the only thing we have at the moment is um, what Western scholars have written down in books and given us. But we're moving out of that and we are rewriting our history um, as the way that the Khmeric people themselves wrote it. We are redefining Khmeric literature for ourselves. We're making a new dictionary. We're making new grammar books. We're redefining all of this, and so we need thinkers. We're thinking about these things, and we are coming up with new ideas, new thought. And so I'm always learning from my students, mm. and it, it's a learning process for all of us. And I and I say this too, and that is I'm a student of Medu Nature for life, even my teacher. This word saba, saba means teach and student. It means both. So I'm a mm. sabbat, I'm a teacher, but I'm also a student. And the student, the sabba, is also a teacher. Those two words are used interchangeably in Medinature. They're one and the same word. And I believe that is so because the teacher is always a student and the student is always a teacher. Mm. What is your hope? For the future uh, generation. Well, what I hope is that 
we African people um, really begin to understand that in order to understand Africa, in order to um, to become more in tune with our nature and our being, our spirit and our energy, that we have to learn more about African people and African cultures. And the way to do that is through African, through learning an African language. It could be any African language, to be honest, but I would hope that that would be Medunetra, along with any other other African languages we study. I literally have a mission these days, and my mission is to revive Medunetra as a living language so that um, kind of like a lingua franca for all African people, it is our classical language. There's more literature written in Medunetra than all of the other ancient European languages and Asian languages all together. We have a rich language and a rich culture that's reflected in the in Medunetra. So my mission is to revive the language as a living language so that we can all uh, speak it, teach it to our children, use it as our classical language. Because if we could do that, our culture, our 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 being as an African people will be revealed to us, and we will have a way of communicating with each other, which right now we mm-hmm. don't. We do right. not. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for this interview. Um, I hope that it was. I, you know what? I'm pretty sure that it. it it will be as enlightening to other people as it has been for me. Thank um, you. And I hope that people do reach out to you in order to learn Medinetra. And um, I hope that we can build from from this. And um, so well, I want to thank you guys you. for – no, thank you. No problem. Yeah. I want to thank everyone for tuning in. Thank you guys so much for your ongoing support. Uh, this is uh, We Declare War. This is the Wiser Edition with uh, Dr. Riketty Amen. And this is Riketty signing off. Thank you guys so much.